God, thank you so much for who you are, for all that you have done in our lives, God, for the grace that you have shown us, uh, and just for just all that you do each and every day in our lives, God. We just, we give thanks this morning. God, we, that last song, we just, we praise you. You have paid our debt, God, and we are so grateful for that, grateful for the love that you have shown us. God, I just pray this morning that you would uh, just speak through your word once again, that the words that come out of my mouth would be your words for your people on your day, God. We're here to hear from you. And I just pray that you would speak through me and use my voice once again. God, we love you. We give you thanks. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in week seven uh, of our Ephesians series, if you can believe that. Uh, it's been, I feel like the time has been flying in this Ephesians series, but we are in week seven right now. Uh, we've got one more week to go after this. Uh, and so far, what we've seen is really Paul kind of writing in two different halves of this book, right? The first half, we have kind of the more theological half. Paul talks about the church, Christ as the head of the church, that we are all a part of the church. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, this is the church. The, the church is not a building. We don't come and consume church. The church is not an institution. We don't come and compete against other churches. That's not what we do. That's not who we are. We are the church. We are one body. We get to Ephesians 2, and he talks about just the beauty of the Gospels, that you and I were once dead in our sin, but we are now alive in Christ. And he revisits the unity of the church, uh, and he prays at the end of chapter 3 to kind of close off this theological half of the book of Ephesians to say that he prays that we would be strengthened, we the church, would be strengthened with power through the Spirit. That same power that he talks about in chapter 1, that is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power, he prays, would be in each and every one of us. Uh, this, is, this is just a huge prayer, uh, and that's kind of how he closes off that first half of Ephesians, this theological half, if you will. Then we get to the practical half of Ephesians, what we've been for the last couple weeks. Uh, it talks about what does life look like in the church? What does it look like to be a part of the body of Christ? What does it look like to be a part of the church? And what, is, what about this local church that we find ourselves in today? How do you be a part? What's a local church? It's a body of believers who are joined together under biblical leadership to grow in Christ-likeness and to express God's love to each other and to the world. That was kind of the definition that we found in the beginning of chapter 4. And then he moves from what does it look like to be a part of the church to now what does it look like just to be an individual who follows Christ. That's what we talked about last week. That we are now marked by the, not by the things of darkness, but we are now a child of of light. Our identity does no longer has to be in the things of darkness that we used to do. Now he talks about the Gentiles, how they live in that way. They do all that stuff. You used to be in darkness, but now you are a child of light. Live as a child of light. Our identity is not in what we used to do. Our identity is in who we are in Christ. We are a child of light, and as such, we live in light. We do things in the light. This week, we dive into another passage and kind of continue this movement that Paul has been talking about, about what does this look like? What does it look like to be a believer? What does it look like to be a part of the church? And remember, we are the church, right? Paul is talking about what this looks like practically. We've gone from what it looks like to be a part of the church to what it looks like to live as an individual in the church. And now, what does this look like in our relationships, particularly at home? What does this look like at home 
in our relationship. And I'll be honest, this passage can be a little bit uncomfortable on its face, uh, but I think this is such a good passage and one that we're not just going to, you can't just skip it over, right? <laughs> it is the word of God. We're not just going to skip this passage. Uh, we're going to go there. We're going to talk about it. We're going to unpack what Paul is saying here. So we're going to go Ephesians chapter 5 starting at verse 21, and we're just going to jump in, and uh, we'll talk about the context and all that kind of stuff as we unpack it. But here's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's it. Well, I won't stop. (laughs) I told you I wasn't going to stop. I won't stop. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church's body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect the husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, Doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are a slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. It's a good It's a good passage there, fun passage, right? Uh, To kind of unpack what Paul is saying here. But really, it is really a a good passage. You know, what Paul is doing here is bring our lives as Christians into our homes and kind of unpacking what this looks like. What does it look like in really three different relationships, right? You have the, the husband and wife relationship, you have the child and the parent relationship, and you have the slave and master relationship. <clears throat> In chapter 6 as well. But before we get there, we read this in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is what the rest of this passage hinges on. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In fact, in the original language, verse 22, wives submit yourselves to your own husbands, doesn't even have its own verb. It's connected to verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this word submit has sort of a bad connotation in our culture today. No one wants to submit, 
Right? No one wants to, to, to do that. No one fe- wants to feel like they have to, especially when someone tells you to submit. It's not, a, it's not like a welcomed thing. Right? No one wants to submit. Uh, but this word submit is kind of seen as, as weakness. It's seen as inferiority and superiority kind of opposed to each other. Right? There's, there's one that's lower and one that's higher. The lower one is submitting to the higher one. But that is not what biblical submission is all about. Submission is not about denigrating the value of another person's life. It's about yielding to someone else in love. That's what biblical submission is. It's about yielding to someone else out of love. A great example of this is Jesus' own relationship with his father. You look at Jesus and you see scripture describes God as the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity. Each of them is divine. Each of them is fully God. No one part of the Trinity is better or higher or superior to the other parts of the Trinity. But you see in John chapter 4, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In Luke chapter 22, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. What is Jesus doing in this passage? Jesus is submitting to the Father. It doesn't mean that he is lower. It doesn't mean that he is subordinate to God the Father. That means that he has full trust in God the Father. That he knows that God the Father loves him and has a plan. And so whatever I need to do, I'm going to do. Jesus is yielding to God the Father out of love. And this is what biblical submission looks like. And this really leads us into our first relationship that Paul talks about here, the marriage relationship. This passage, among other passages in Scripture, has been used over the years to really just kind of, with some just really wild theological ideas about men and women and one being superior to the other. That's just not what Paul was doing here. You can't make a good biblical argument that men are created to be better than women or the other way around. You cannot make a biblical argument. Men and women are both image bearers of God. Men and women were both created with equal dignity before God and each other. You get to Genesis 1:27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are all image bearers. We are all created with equal dignity before God and each other. Men and women both share in the privilege of being treated and, and, and created in the image of God, both men and women. And in that light, God makes it very clear from the beginning, speaking against any sort of male or female superiority or dominance. This is clear in Scripture. Paul, in the book of Galatians, just a few pages in front of what we were reading today, reminds us of this fact. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were once were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, when we come to Christ, we are part of the family of God. These, these gender things, they don't even matter anymore. One is not better, one is not Worse. In Christ, we are all one. The Jew is not better than the Gentile. The free person is not better than the slaves. Males are not better than females. We are all one. We are all equal in the eyes of God. But at the same time, we are not identical. 
We are equal, but we are not identical. There's a quote that I was reading this week from from David Platt talking about marriage. He says, Behold, the beauty of God's design for man, woman, and marriage. Two dignified people, both molded in the image of their maker. Two diverse people, uniquely designed to complement each other. A male and a female, fashioned by God to form one flesh. A physical bond between two bodies where the deepest point of union is found at the greatest point of difference. A matrimony marked by unity and diversity, equality with variety, and personal satisfaction through shared consummation. So what Paul is doing here in this passage is not putting men or husbands on some pedestal and saying, wives, you need to just submit to this guy. This is not what Paul is doing. This passage is making clear, though, the the purpose of marriage. Now, here's the purpose of marriage, verse, five, verse 32 in, in chapter 5. Sorry, that's wrong. Uh, 22, 23. I just switched the 3 and the 2. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Marriage, according to Ephesians 5, is a picture of Christ and the church. This is what this is. And in that picture, with that picture, God's intention is to portray Christ's love for the church and the church's love for Christ. This is what marriage is all about. What is that picture that we portray? It's, it's what we just read. Wives, submit yourselves. Husbands, love your wives. There's this, <clears throat> keeping in mind what we've already said about submission, it doesn't mean one party is less than or greater than. What Paul is putting forward here is very countercultural. Here at this time, wives and children were property. They were things to be owned, not people to be loved. That's just the way things were. There was such a, a low view of women in this culture. There was actually a part in the Jewish morning prayer in which a Jewish man would pray this prayer. And this is a very real thing. He would give thanks every morning that he was not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was part of their prayer. I mean, you, women had no legal rights. And in Rome, it was even worse. In Rome, it, where, where Paul is writing from, the whole atmosphere at this point was just adulterous. One commentator I read this week said that the marriage bond was on the way to complete breakdown. Fun side note that I learned this week, too. Not only was this church in Ephesus dealing with that sort of atmosphere, they were also dealing with the opposite atmosphere. Ephesus is the home of the temple to Artemis the female god of the hunt, of war, female empowerment. So you have this culture over here that says women are nothing. I'm glad I'm not a woman. 
Then you have this culture over here that says power to the women. Then you have them mixed in one city. And this is the city that Paul's writing to. And, and I think when you, when you think about all of that, just Paul is saying, look, like we remember we are, one, we are one body. And what Paul is advocating here for is super countercultural. Wives, submit to your husbands. In a culture where wives were property, they didn't really have a choice to submit. And wives over here were empowered. Wives, submit to your husbands. Not because you have to, but out of love. Because we submit to one another, verse 21, out of reverence for Christ. We submit, wives, submit to your husbands out of love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. That's countercultural, believe it or not. Husbands, love your wives. This wife that I think is property, I need to love her now. These children that I just think of as, as things, like I need to love them now. We'll get to that later. Like Paul is advocating for something that is just so countercultural here, but what is he advocating for? He is advocating for the church in their homes to be a picture of God's love for the church and our love for God. This is a picture of marriage here. Uh, this is wives submit to your husbands as the, as the church submits to Christ. How does the church submit to Christ? We give our everything to Christ because we love him. We want to be with him forever. We know that he has the best in mind for the church. We know that we can trust where he is leading us. We know that he can protect us. We know that he will give us everything that we need. We, we give up everything to Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Well, Paul doesn't actually leave that up for interpretation. Here's what he said. Love your wives as the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. How did Christ love the church? Christ died for the church. Christ was willing to give up his rights and lay down his life for the church. Husbands, that's how we're supposed to love our wives. That's countercultural. Now, you think about that in a culture where, where women were just, they were there so you could have dinner and your kids could be raised. Saying, no, husbands, you need, to, you need to love your wives. Just like Christ loved the church. Just like Christ loved the church. And when this happens. This is who God has designed the husband to be, a man who gives his everything who he has for the good of his wife, who's ready to lay aside his rights, willing to lay down his life for the sake of his wife. And when that happens, this whole idea of a wife submitting to her husband is not a burden on the wife either. Why? Because the wife knows the husband loves me. I can trust him. I know that he would give everything for me. I know that he would lay down his life for me. Now, wives, submit to your husband. Husbands, love your wives. And when this happens, it's just such a beautiful glimpse of the image of Christ and the church. The world catches a glimpse of the gospel. 
Now, this was countercultural then. To a lesser extent, it's still countercultural. And this is still, I believe, the way that God designs marriage. Husbands, love your wives. Women's, women's wives, <laughs> submit to your husbands. Out of what? Out of love. Out of love for Christ and his church. This is why we do what we do. They see, the world will see that following Christ is not just a matter of, of duty, but a means to a full, eternal joy. This is, this is Paul's desire. This is Paul's call, Jesus' call for marriage. Paul moves on to another relationship. Not, he doesn't just leave it in the marriage. He takes it to the child and the parent. Right? The, the, he moves on to the child and parent relationship in chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Fathers, and this word here is really parents. It says fathers, but it's, it's not male. It's not a male word. It's meant for parents. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I think about this, and again, what he does here is countercultural. Children were thought of as property. They were just an outcome of the wife that you have in the marriage and something that happens in marriage, right? This is what happens. You have kids. That's how they were thought of. Right. But he, again, what Paul is doing here is just like women, children were thought of as objects. And what Paul is doing here is he's, he's kind of giving the child a, a dignified place at home. This child is not just property. This is yours. This is someone to be loved, not an object to take advantage of. And Paul says here, he pulls from Exodus and Deuteronomy. And he says, hey, children need to, to obey their parents which is easier, by the way, when the parents look like the, the couple listed above. Children, obey your parents. But he didn't spend long talking about that. He talks about fathers, don't exasperate your children. And encourages another countercultural move here. While this word fathers is not just directly to just fathers, fathers are definitely included in this. Right? Which is, again, countercultural. Right? This, is not, this is not usual. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. He encourages uh, another countercultural move here. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, fathers bringing up children was not a thing in this culture. Fathers were not involved in their children's life. In fact, there was a saying in Rome that, uh, <clears throat> that as long as the father was alive... The Roman son would never come of age. The Roman son would come of age when the father died and he had to be the man. That's, that, was, that was just how kids were treated then. They, they, just, they were just kids. They, were, they didn't have any role. They didn't have anything. But he's encouraging parents and fathers to be able to say, no, you need to bring up your children in the instruction of the Lord. Everything that we've talked about over this whole letter, bring them up in that. Let them know what the church is. Let them know their role in the church, that they have a role here. They play a part. They are a part of the body of Christ. And as a part of the body of Christ, they have a role in your family as well. Bring them up in the instruction there. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is different. 
I mean, again, just highlighting this whole movement of Christ is just a super countercultural movement. And that's just what this is. Now, we've seen earlier in the book of Ephesians, this is a more inclusive movement, that it, it reimagines marriage, it reimagines parenthood. And then we get to this third relationship that is reimagined here between the slave and the master. Now, this last relationship here is one that we don't really have anymore. We don't really have slaves and masters, and it'd be easy just to kind of say, well, that just doesn't really apply to us anymore, and, and whatever. But I think there's still stuff to grab here for us. I mean, it's honestly pretty incredible and pretty countercultural, if you will, that Paul even addresses slaves here. Because here's what that means. That means that there were slaves who were a part of the body of Christ in the church in Ephesus. It means that the church in Ephesus had brought in slaves and let them be a part of them. And also, their masters were there. Think about this. This is Paul is addressing the slaves. And, and the thing about these passages about slaves and masters is even though it's been abolished now, I think we can all look at this and just think about it in the context of work and jobs and bosses and being an employee. And here's what he says. Slaves... Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that who is both that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Our primary responsibility, no matter what stage of life we are in, is to serve Jesus. We do it in our workplaces. Even though we have people who are over us, we have bosses, supervisors, whatever you call them at your job, we work for them as if we were working for the Lord. We treat them as if we were treating Jesus. This is what he's telling slaves to do. Even more so us. We're not slaves. And he talks about masters. Bosses. <laughs> hey, treat your people fairly. Treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. There's no favoritism with him. There's no favoritism with him. It doesn't matter how high on the ladder you are or how low on the ladder you are. You are loved by God. And we, our goal in life is to serve him. He is, he's talking to masters and saying, hey, your master is in heaven. Just because you might be higher up than someone doesn't mean that you don't also come underneath God. I think I look at these relationships that Paul talks about here, the, the marriage relationship, the, the child-parent relationship, the slave-master, worker-boss, whatever you want to say, relationship, and really it all goes back to where we started. Verse 21, 
Submit yourselves, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. Again, that doesn't mean put yourself lower than everybody. It means out of love. Yield to them as if they were Jesus. Submit to one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what all of this boils down to. Submit to one another out of love, out of reverence for Christ. This is what it all boils down to. This is how my Bible says instructions for Christian households. That's what this heading is here. How does a Christian household look? We, we submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. Out of love for each other, out of love for Christ, we submit to each other. Yeah, I'm looking forward to moving on here, going to the armor of God next time we're together. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. We'll end our series with that. I hope, I hope that this, this passage, I know that's, there's a lot there. <laughs> there's a lot there. Uh, and honestly, not a, not a super fun passage to preach on. <laughs> but it's good. It's good. It's good stuff. It is the word of God. And as the word of God, we trust it, we believe it, and we know that Paul has the best in mind. And he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's practice that submission this week to each other. Let's pray. God, we love you. We give you thanks. We give you praise, God. You are good. And God, even in, even in Scripture, there are some passages that might seem uncomfortable or, or whatever, God, but we know that it is still your word. And God, we, we read this command to submit to one another out of reverence for you, and we just, we pray that you would help us to do that this week. Help us to be people who, who yield to one another out of love, who submit to one another, each other, one another, out of reverence for you. God, help us to live this out. Help us to be the people you're calling us to be. God, we love you. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? And as you go, let me just uh, pray a word of blessing over you. May our God, God of grace and love, mercy, truth, may he go with you and ahead of you this week. Be in your homes, be in your workplaces, in your relationships with one another, that you might be a light for him as you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. May he give you boldness and courage as you go to do what he's called you to do, to say what he's called you to say, to make a difference wherever you may find yourself. Go in peace this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming this morning. It's good to see you.